And I am calling this message, They Were First Called Christians. Uh, before I do that, uh, I would like to uh, note the fact that today uh, marks actually the one-year anniversary of the first day that I stepped up here into this pulpit as your senior pastor. <clears throat> I, I say that not so that you will applaud me, but so that I might applaud you, because I am just so grateful and so thankful for the year that we've had. Uh, it's really been one of the best years of our entire lives, including uh, my family, as you've welcomed us into this uh, congregation, and it's been uh, a really wonderful thing. Uh, you know, I've had some great days in my life. Uh, I, had, I got married. I had two beautiful children, uh, but those things happened while I was still an unbeliever, so uh, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the greatest day of my life as a believer was the day that I was called here to be the pastor of this church, and so uh, I'm, I'm just grateful uh, the bloom is not off the rose for me at all, and I'm just thrilled uh, to still be uh, and continue to be a part of this place and look forward uh, for many years to see what the Lord will do. So uh, with that said, before we get into the message, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, uh, we do thank you uh, for this amazing church, this amazing building, uh, this amazing identity that you have given us as Christians. And Lord, uh, we look to, to learn how to bear that name today. Uh, as your first century church did 2,000 years ago, Lord. May we learn from this church at Antioch and apply what we learn to our lives today. Uh, Holy Spirit, come and teach us what you would have us learn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, finding our identity can be among the most difficult things uh, that we need to do in our lives. We need to figure out who we are and, and what are the things that make us who we are. What are the things uh, that define us, that, that, that shape our identity you know, when you're a young person, you can often be identified with your family, right? Your, your Bill's daughter or your John's son or something like that. Uh, and sometimes it's not until uh, you move out of the house as a young person until you gain your own identity. You become a student at some college or you're a member of the armed forces uh, or the workforce. And uh, as kids are trying to uh, establish their own identity, one of the things that makes uh, friction in the house is a child trying to form his own identity, and sometimes that runs uh, counter to what your parents would like for your identity, and, and that's, the, that's where the, the, the tension is oftentimes. Uh, kids want to have their own identity, and parents certainly want kids to have their own identity, but they want to keep it uh, within certain parameters, right? There are certain parameters outside which we don't want our kids to find their identity, and, and sometimes that's where uh, some of the conflict is. Uh, sometimes uh, other people project your identity onto you, right? Like you're the good athlete or, or you're the, you're the good-looking kid or conversely, negatively, you're the bad student or the bad apple and we need to stay away from that kid, right? Uh, so there are times when people project their identity or your identity onto you. Uh, but people need to uh, define their own identity uh, for themselves and not the one that others project onto them. And I think the best way to do that especially for, for young people, is to ask this question, how does Jesus see me? And then find your identity in that question. For you young people, your parents have raised you and they've, they've done the best they can to give you a Christian foundation. And now you have to decide if that faith is your parents' faith or if that faith is your own faith. And are you going to own that for yourself? Uh, do you self-identify as a Christian? Do you know for yourself that you are a sinner and that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's where your identity is found. Uh, that decision will shape 
how you see the world and your place in it and your identity uh, in the world. And of course, it's the most important decision that you will ever make. Uh, the new church of the first century was having these same issues. They were, they were growing, they were expanding, they were seeking their own identity. Uh, who were they in Christ? Uh, this church was growing and expanding into Gentile areas, and so there's lots of conflict between these Christians and these Jews. And, and these Christians now had become so separated from Judaism that they weren't even considered part of the sect of Judaism anymore. They were their own new group of people. And people projected a new name onto those people, and that name was Christian. They called them Christians for the first time there. And these new believers had to decide whether they were going to own that name for themselves, because that name was given as a derogatory term. It was a mocking term. It was not a name that they chose for themselves. And so they had to decide, because what Christian means is belonging to the party of Christ. And they had to decide if they were going to wear that name and everything that it would look like, because that name would bring hardship uh, to these new people who were calling them or being called Christians. Now, for us to be identified as Christians is something that we ought to strive for all our lives. It's a blessing uh, to be called a Christian, and I hope that we're bearing the fruit of what it means to be called a Christian in our lives. Someone once asked the question, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And I pray that in our lives, I hope that we would find that there is enough evidence uh, that we could be outwardly convicted by the things that we have done and said, that we would be convicted of being Christian. So let's look at how these new Christians at Antioch wore their new name and their new identity, beginning uh, with the expansion of this church into Antioch. So the first uh, section here is verses 19 to 21, the expansion of the church into Antioch. And Luke began this section basically going all the way back to chapter 8, verse 4, right after the death of Stephen, where it says that uh, the Christians then were persecuted and scattered about. Uh, and in Luke chapter 8, uh, he followed one thread of Christianity as he talks about Philip and how Philip took the gospel to Samaria and then when he was taken up from Samaria, he landed in Azotus and then worked his way up the west coast of uh, Israel along the Mediterranean and found himself in Caesarea. So that was one thread. And then another thread was Paul. Paul is miraculously saved on the way to Damascus, and we know what will happen with him. And then he picks up another thread when he talks about Peter going to Caesarea uh, to meet with Cornelius, and Cornelius and his household were saved. And so there's another thread uh, that resulted from that persecution in chapter 8. And now we have yet another thread, uh, this gospel now proceeding into Antioch, uh, from uh, all, all this happening from chapter 8, verse 4. And so we see in these verses, uh, dating back all the way to chapter 8, that there are various threads of the gospel going here and going there, and they're all going to be woven together into one tapestry that will become this new Christian church that swept through the Roman Empire. Well, some of these believers, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So I want you to look at the map so we can see what we're talking about here. This region here is known as Phoenicia. This is Antioch up here, and Cyprus is this island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. So uh, verse 19 says that those people were speaking to Jews only, but then verse 20 tells us that some of these people uh, who were actually from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks too. So look at Christianity, where it is. This is Cyrene, all the way over here in North Africa. 
this is Cyprus over here, and these folks somehow found their way into Jerusalem at the time of chapter 8 when the persecution began. So Christianity is spreading all throughout uh, the Roman Empire. And, and what we have in these places is, is these Hellenistic Christians, right? They come from Greek culture. Uh, they're Jews, but they're from Greek culture. They're not native to Jerusalem, but they happen to be in Jerusalem at the time of the persecution. And so the, the persecution caused the gospel to spread even further to all parts uh, of Israel. And in, in, as far as Antioch is concerned, that's outside of Israel. So Peter spoke to one significant uh, Greek, right? He spoke to Cornelius in Caesarea and to his family. And that story is told with uh, epic proportions, right? This is God intervening in, in Peter's life, appearing to him in a vision, and then into Cornelius's life in a vision. And then by his divine orchestration, these two have a meeting and, and Cornelius, the first Gentile uh, man, is converted. But here in this story, this story is almost told casually, like there were a bunch of people, we don't know their names, they were persecuted, they went from Cyrene to, uh, and to Cyprus and into Jerusalem and then scattered all about and they're making converts wherever they go. Just regular people traveling around, making converts out of these Gentiles wherever they went. So they find themselves up in Antioch, which is now, it's up here, this is modern day Turkey. And <clears throat> we need to spend a minute about Antioch. Uh, Antioch was a city, and when we talk about cities in uh, New Testament times, we have to get a, an idea of what this city looked like. Uh, when, when we think about cities, uh, you know, we can tend to think of New York City. I mean, it certainly wasn't that. It wasn't New York City, but at the same time, it wasn't this little village either. Uh, Antioch was a, a real cosmopolitan city. Uh, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria, so that's pretty big. And scholars estimate that it had between 500 and 800,000 people living in it. And just to give you a frame of reference for that, uh, Tucson, Arizona today has a population of 531,000. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 600,000 today. Fort Worth, 833,000 people today. So these are cities that we think of as pretty substantial cities. And that's the amount of people that were living in Antioch at the time. So it's a pretty substantial city. Uh, and it was a center for commerce. But Antioch was a very, very much a morally bankrupt city. It was a pagan city, and it was known for its worship uh, of this goddess called Daphne. Uh, and there was a statue of Daphne that was about uh, five miles outside of the city of Antioch. And uh, Greek mythology had it that Apollo, the Greek god, would chase after this Daphne to make her into his lover, and that, uh, that repeated itself every night as the men of Antioch would go out to this statue and they would, they would basically reenact the scene of Apollo chasing Daphne as these men from Antioch would go uh, and meet these uh, prostitutes from the temple by uh, the, ta by the uh, statue of Daphne, and they would reenact this, this scene of Apollo chasing Daphne. And so, uh, obviously, very pagan, very uh, cultic, and certainly uh, not uh, anything that we would want to emulate today as these uh, prostitution practices were going on. And I tell you this thing because Cornelius was a God-fearer, right? He was seeking after God, uh, and God came to him. But now here is God doing this most amazing thing in this most corrupt and pagan and uh, morally bereft place uh, it shows us that God can take even the most morally bankrupt place and transform it 
into uh, even the hub of Christianity, which it ultimately became. Um, this city would become the hub of Christianity. Paul's uh, missionary journeys would all proceed from this city of Antioch uh, coming up. And so uh, it's, it's really interesting to me that God can take a city like this and make something great out of it. Now, fast forward 2,000 years to our day today, right? Are you concerned about the state of America? Uh, are you concerned that uh, our society seems to has, have lost its way, that there are, is really no standard of morals anymore, that everyone does what is right in his own eyes? Uh, I'm concerned about that. Uh, we all should be concerned about that. But uh, this little passage gives me hope because if God can do what he did in Antioch, why can't he do what he did in Antioch here today? Uh, I think he can. Uh, so God is sovereign. He can do this if he wants to. And so I just keep praying that, that this country will take steps away from the moral decline that we've been on, on the path of for the past generation plus, and that we'll move back toward uh, a more uh, holy lifestyle that God would want for us. And so pray that God will do that. How will we know if God is doing it? If we pray these prayers, how will we know if God is answering them? Well, we ought to be able to see it, right? In, in uh, this church in Antioch, uh, in verse 21, it says that they saw that the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number of people believed. So that's a telltale sign. Uh, the hand of the Lord is with them, people believe, and they turn to the Lord. And I just think it's amazing that in this city that is without any moral fiber whatsoever, a bunch of new Christians show up, start preaching the gospel, and the city is changed. The gospel has the power to change the world. And we need to know that as Christians in our day and age. And it wasn't long before this church in Antioch was uh, becoming so famous that the people down in Jerusalem were beginning to hear about the things that were happening in Antioch. And so the church of Jerusalem sent Barnabas 300 miles north from Jerusalem to Antioch to see what was going on in this place called Antioch. And so uh, what Barnabas does is he heads up there and he gives an endorsement to the church at Antioch. Why do you think they chose Barnabas? In previous uh, episodes where they were going to send somebody out, they sent out Peter and John into Samaria, right, to, to confirm what Philip was doing. I think it's because Barnabas was from Greek culture, like these folks were, even though he was a Jew. So he would have uh, much in common with them being from the same culture. But even more than that, Barnabas was an encourager. Uh, he would go and he would make people feel good. He would affirm them. Uh, and, and that's just what new Christians and just what this new church needed. Luke doesn't tell us anything particular about what Barnabas saw. But if you read the verse, it says he saw the uh, grace of God. He witnessed the grace of God. And uh, I wish that, that Luke had said in particular what he witnessed. But uh, when you witness people being converted and turning to the Lord, that is witnessing the grace of God. And so I think that's probably what he saw. And it's a glorious thing to witness the work of God. You each have seen it in your own conversion. You were once this, and God did a work in your life, and now you're this. And that is a miracle of God. And you've seen it in some of your family members, perhaps. And you've certainly seen it in the life of this church, as God's hand has been involved in this church. And and when you witness the grace of God, there's only one thing you can do, and that's just what Barnabas did, which was to worship, to rejoice, and encourage these folks to remain true to the Lord. And so that's what Barnabas did. Other than Joseph of Arimathea, 
The only person that Luke calls good in his Luke-Acts uh, compilation is, uh, is uh, the man who buried uh, 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 Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, couldn't come up with that, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and then he says of, of, uh, of uh, him also that he was a good man and he was full of faith, and that, of course, would remind us of Stephen. So in Barnabas, you have a good man, a man of faith, uh, and a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, and so uh, that's really high praise for Luke uh, from Barnabas. Uh, some people are what I call cross-the-street people. Do you know what a cross-the-street person is? You see a person walking towards you on the side of the street, and you cross the street because you'd rather cross the street and walk on the other side than have to have a conversation with this person. Uh, Barnabas was not a person like that. Nobody was ever unhappy when Barnabas showed up. Barnabas was uh, a fun person to be around. He was an encouraging person to be around. He would affirm you, make you feel good about yourself. Uh, he was a good friend uh, to everybody. Uh, and so when I think about Barnabas, I want to be a Barnabas. And I think I know how to be a Barnabas, but sometimes I fail in what it takes to be a Barnabas. We need to smile a lot. We need to encourage people a lot. We need to seek people out, uh, and, and especially if we know that they happen to be struggling, uh, and talk to them a lot, encourage them, listen to what they have to say, uh, and try and, and, and tell them that God loves them, and that he's, he's got a plan, he's got a purpose for whatever it is that, that that person happens to be going through. Just be a friend to people. That's what Barnabas was. He was attractive to people. Uh, people came to him, and he was able to convert people to Christianity because of him. And verse 24 says that considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and that's in addition to uh, the large number who believed in verse 21. Uh, so many people are turning to Christ, and a lot of people as a result of Barnabas's attractiveness. In fact, so many people were becoming Christians that Barnabas seemed to be uh, over his head, right? He knew he needed help. Uh, Clint Eastwood famously said in Dirty Harry, a man's got to know his limitations, right? And uh, Barnabas certainly knew his. Uh, he was not able to handle the size of this huge church, and he knew he needed help. He needed a teacher, and he knew where to find one. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, the uh, apostles uh, shipped Paul out of uh, Jerusalem and sent him up to Caesarea and then to Tarsus, his hometown. And amazingly, we don't know anything about Paul from those 10 years. Those are called the 10 silent years. But, but uh, Barnabas knew where to find Paul, and so he went to Tarsus to try and find his man. So if you look on the map, uh, this is Antioch over here. Here's Tarsus about 150 miles to the west. And so uh, he is going to seek his man. Barnabas is going to seek his man uh, there in Tarsus where he, he believes he is. And so uh, he wants to go to find him. And that Greek word means that he found him with much difficulty. And, and I wonder why that is. I, I wonder if it's because as a new Christian, Paul may have been kicked out of his house, right? His, his family were devout Jews, Pharisees of Pharisees. And so uh, it was probably difficult for Paul to say that he was part of this new Christian uh, sect to his parents, and maybe he was kicked out. And Paul said in Philippians 3.8, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And all things may have included even his family. Uh, being a disciple of Christ is costly. When Barnabas found Saul, Paul, he brought him back to Antioch, and they spent a full year there ministering to these new believers at Antioch, and they were teaching, and that was Paul's gift. One of Paul's gifts 
was teaching, and certainly Barnabas was an encourager, but perhaps not the teacher that Paul was. And so Paul comes and he uses his different gift that builds up the body of Christ. And we each have different gifts, and they're all needed for the functioning of the body of Christ. So don't neglect the use of your gifts. Uh, when we were here last week after service and we had that uh, beautiful party outside for uh, Ruth and for Bess and for Margaret, it was just wonderful to see so many of you using your gifts of grace and creativity and hospitality and service uh, to build up a few beautiful ladies in our church and, and to build up the body of Christ and to give glory to Christ by the use of your gifts. Even simple usage of your gifts like that is, is an honor to people and glory to Christ. So uh, I'm just always so happy to see us using our gifts like that. Well, it was during this time, uh, during this year of ministry uh, with Paul and uh, Barnabas to these people at Antioch that they were first called Christians. And the suffix I-A-N means to, uh, belonging to the party of. So these people belonged to the party of Christ. And that was meant as a derogatory term, like these people are, they're following this Christ character around. It wasn't meant as a, as a term of endearment or a term of honor to them. Uh, so these people belong to the party of Christ, and that new name is extremely significant because a new name means a new identity. Uh, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, and that became Abraham's new identity as he began uh, he had Isaac and then obviously the nations from that. Uh, so that was his new identity. And, and Christians have a new identity as well. They are not considered a sect within Judaism anymore. Now they have their own particular identity. You know, believe it or not, the word Christian is only used two other times in the whole New Testament. Uh, so this time and two others. And each time it's used, it's used by outsiders to Christianity as a name put onto Christians. It's a derogatory term. The, 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 the Christians, they didn't call themselves that. They called themselves believers or brothers or saints or something like that. Uh, but now they have this new name, Christian. So what does it mean to bear the name Christian? What does it mean uh, to bear that name? If you ask most people in the street today if they are Christian, most of them will probably say yes. If you ask them what it means to be a Christian, you're gonna get all kinds of different answers. Some people will say they're Christians by default because they're not Jews, Muslims, or Hindus, so therefore they're Christians, right? Uh, some people say they're Christians because they believe in God, and that makes them a Christian. So very few people will say to you, I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus Christ is my savior. He died for my sins and rose from the dead so that I can have eternal life. That's not an answer you're likely to hear on the street today. Uh, to be a Christian means that you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Uh, when you say that, you will suffer persecution, just like the church did 2,000 years ago, just like the church is suffering persecution around the world today uh, for the name of Jesus Christ. We will suffer that too, but to truly be a disciple of Christ, we bear the name Christian and whatever persecution comes with it. We have to deny ourselves and take, off, take up our cross and follow him. That's our new identity as Christians. Now, the last thing I want to say in this section is to note the irony of Paul helping a church that he helped to create by his persecution. I think that is so ironic, and I think it shows the tremendous sense of humor that God has, that he takes 
This scattered church, Paul coming and looking to kill Christians, scattering people all over the place till a church finds itself in Antioch. And now here's Paul teaching the very church that he helped to create uh, by his uh, persecution. So God is sovereign. In God's providence, he can do amazing things. And so uh, that's what he did with this church in Antioch. So now let's take a look at the empathy of this church at Antioch. And here we'll see that Christians, these new Christians, put others above themselves. And that is a very mature thing to do for people who are young Christians. To put others above yourself is a very mature thing to do. And it's one of the great marks of a disciple of Jesus. So first Barnabas comes down from Jerusalem, and now some prophets come down from Jerusalem. And one of these prophets, uh, his name is Agabus. We'll see him again uh, later on in Acts, but he's a prophet. And Uh, He comes down and he predicted that there would be a great famine all over the known world. And then at the end of verse 28, uh, Luke tells us, kind of uh, giving us the the end of the story, he says this famine actually did happen and it happened during the reign of Claudius. Now Claudius reigned from 41 to 54 BC. And during his reign, there are several famines that were noted uh, during that brief period of time. But the most extensive famine was during 46 AD. And Egyptian records tell us that there was an overflowing of the Nile River in 45 AD, which resulted in there being uh, no crops the following year. And so this famine happened in 46 AD uh, in Jerusalem. And since this famine was yet to come, then what the Christians did was they prepared and they prepared to send gifts down. They wanted to help. And each according to his own ability determined to send a contribution. So that's not legalism. That's not you're obligated to send X amount of dollars. It's I am going to put this on your heart and you give what you think is right in your own eyes to give. And they determined to to send a contribution of their own to Jerusalem. Uh, Most of these scholars think that the prophecy of Agabus happened in 44 AD. The famine was in 46. So they had two years to assemble funds together. And then they sent these funds down to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Saul uh, to the elders who were there at Jerusalem. So just like Joseph planned for his famine uh, in Egypt, the famine that was going to uh, be the result or or the cause of him rising to such great power and saving the world through his feeding plan, uh, these new Christians also prepared for this coming famine and they committed to a long-term plan to help. And that is really a wonderful mark of a disciple, especially uh, in a young church like this. It shows real faith in action. So we learn that we need to be generous from these folks in Antioch, that we need to give sacrificially out of a love for a brother or sister who we know is suffering or will be about to suffer. And also that the spiritual gift of salvation is the most valuable gift that we can possibly receive. And once we've received it, It should be absolutely nothing for us to give of our material goods once we have a spiritual gift. Material goods should be of so little value to us that we should just be willing to give them away, knowing that God is able to replenish. Back in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, remember many sold all their things and there was no one who had need. But here, now, later, there was a need. And these folks were making efforts to figure out how they were going to take action to fulfill it. And true disciples of Christ uh, will give of their material goods, knowing that God will replenish them. You know, most of us have had times in our lives when we've been prosperous enough and we've been able to be the giver to people who are in need. 
And some of us have had periods of time where we've had to be the receiver because we have had need. Uh, I have had to be the receiver at times, and it's a difficult thing to do. It hurts our pride uh, to, to have to be the receiver, but it, it's okay to be the receiver for a period of time. Uh, God may be trying to teach us something uh, in our time of need and in our time of lack, and, and who's to say that God will not uh, fill us again so that we can again uh, be the giver? One other note, and that is that Barnabas and Saul came and they gave these gifts to the elders, not the apostles. This is that interesting. So I think what we're seeing is that the apostles are actually taking their gifts and they're going around and they're teaching and they're leaving lay elders in charge of the church to run the day-to-day operation of the church. And so here are the elders receiving uh, these gifts. And, and Paul, of course, would go about establishing churches and then leaving lay elders in charge of the churches while he went off to form another church. So we begin to see the beginning of the transfer from the apostles to lay elders who are now uh, going to be in charge of these churches. So what we've seen is that there are many different threads. They're stretching from uh, to Caesarea and then through Paul's line and now up to Antioch, and they're all going to be woven together uh, to create one tapestry that will become Christianity. Uh, though 300 miles away, this church in Antioch blessed this church in Jerusalem, and that blessing, of course, creates a bond, right? It, it makes this church unified and tight. And even though 300 miles away, it forms a strong bond between these, these Christian communities uh, from different locations. And, and that's what we're striving for. We're striving for unity uh, with our fellow Christians, not division. Uh, biblical churches that are marked by this kind of generosity and love for each other are going to become unified, and, and we should strive for that. We should not as churches be marked by petty, minor theological differences that don't really make a bit of difference, that divide us rather than unify us. And I pray that that will continue to be a mark of our church. So that's the story of this church spreading into Antioch. Let's think of some things that we can learn. The first thing I want to say about this is that whatever we do, we must have the hand of the Lord with us. You know, the people who spread this gospel into Antioch. They're completely anonymous. We're not told a single name other than Barnabas who, who these folks were. Uh, we, have, we have no idea, but we will see them in heaven someday. Uh, but they were able to grow the church because the hand of the Lord was with them. And, you know, we can do a lot of things without the hand of the Lord with us, right? We can have a lot of fun. We can make a lot of money. We can get married and we can have kids without the hand of the Lord with us. And we can also get ourselves in a whole lot of trouble when the hand of the Lord is not with us. But one thing we definitely cannot do without the hand of the Lord being with us is to make disciples, to make converts. We need the hand of the Lord to be with us to do that. Saving souls is the miraculous work of the hand of God. So pray that his hand would be with us like it was in the first century church and that people would be saved. Pray that we might win souls and make disciples just like the first century church did as we exist here in Garland, that we will grow this church in Garland and reach these people with the gospel or wherever God sends us from here. It can only happen by the hand of the Lord. Here's the second thing. Good, hand, good things take time. Barnabas and Saul spent a year teaching in that church, and, and many people came to the Lord, but they also need to be discipled. We should never 
make a convert and then just leave them to figure out what to do next on their own. We're supposed to disciple them and lead them uh, into this Christian life. Uh, that's why they stayed for a year teaching these folks also. So not only was, was, were Paul and Barnabas teaching them, but, but God was teaching Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas because he was preparing them for the missionary journeys uh, that were soon to come. So don't worry that God sometimes takes longer than we would like to have him resolve a problem in our lives. God is working. He's training us. He's teaching us something. Uh, the blessing is sometimes in the waiting. This is where patience comes in. This is where I need help. And many, many of you may need help too. It's hard to be patient. Uh, but let God be God, whether it's your improving health, your improving financial condition, or most importantly, your spiritual condition, let God be God. Have patience. Sometimes he needs time to accomplish his purposes. And finally, wear the name Christian well. This name started out as a term of derision, but over the centuries, Christians became to be more and more respected, right? They were looked at as people of moral character and, and people that you could look up to. But now the pendulum has kind of swung back again, right? And Christians are now... Uh, kind of mocked now, right? We used to be tolerated. Now we're, we're mocked and sometimes outright scorned for our beliefs and for our moral convictions. Uh, but we need to bear up under that mocking and persecution, whatever it is, well. We need to own our identity as a Christian and suffer whatever comes our way uh, and whatever God allows to come our way. Uh, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear his name. It's our identity. We are Christians. Let's own that identity and let's be proud to own it and let's be a light to the people who look to us uh, from this society uh, to show them what a Christian looks like and to show them uh, that God is worthy of honor and praise because of what they see in us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this new identity this identity that you've given us, they were first called Christians, and we are called Christians too, Lord, and we, we, we say it proudly, we say it loudly, Lord, and, and may we say it by the way we live our lives, uh, not as much as, as by our words, as by our deeds, Lord. May we be a light that shines to uh, our surroundings, and that may, it, may, I, may we be so attractive, like Barnabas, to others, that, that people will simply be drawn to the light of the gospel, Lord, and help us to be your instruments as we wear this new, this new identity of Christian. May we wear it well. In Jesus' name we ask it, Lord. Amen.